our Father in heaven. Just so grateful for the blessings that we've received these past three days as we've fellowshiped together. And as we come to the final meeting, there's always a knot in my stomach as we realize that this is coming to a close. And as we separate from the sweet fellowship that we've enjoyed, I just pray that you would be with each one. Each one here as they travel, but more so each one here as we go back to our daily work as physicians, dentists, healthcare workers, as spouses and family that supports that work. I just pray that we will be inspired to learn more from the master physician and the master teacher about what true medical missionary work will look like in these last days. Bless each one. Remove the impediments in my mind this morning that your Holy Spirit may have complete access to speak to each heart today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just as a way of review, on Friday morning we talked a little bit about the faith of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, that is pistos Jesu Christos, the faith of Jesus. Translators have wrestled with the idea that if it's even possible for God, who knows everything, the beginning and the end, to have faith. Because faith is seeing what does not now exist. It's seeing what might be. And we realized and we uh, uh, studied the fact that Jesus lived every single moment and every single day of his life by faith, by faith in his Father. And the ultimate demonstration of faith was when Jesus submitted even to the death of the cross. And as he held out on the cross, feeling forsaken of his father. Did his father forsake him? No. But he felt forsaken because of the weight of sin that was causing the separation that caused him not to be able to feel his father's presence. And yet he hung on. He hung on to realizing in his past experience that God had never forsaken him before, And he hung on to the prophecies in God's word that stood true. That even though his experience told him that he was not coming through this alive, that he was not going to see through the portals of the tomb, as Ellen White said in Desire of Ages, page 753. By faith, he was victorious. And there has only been one truly just, righteous person that has lived in this world. That's Jesus Christ. And the faith that he wrought out on the cross that day is the only perfect faith. And he offers that faith to you and to me. And so we talked and looked at Romans. And we looked at various places where most of our modern translations interpret that if we have faith in Jesus... We justify God. No, it's the faith of Jesus that justifies God. And there's nothing wrong with putting your faith in Jesus. But if we're relying on my faith, it's a shaky faith. It's not the tested, true faith of Jesus that he gives to each one of us. And so if we can just turn the formula around 180 degrees and claim the faith of Jesus working in my life, 
That's a powerful faith. That takes my eyes off of my own weakness and it puts it on who? Jesus Christ, the source of true faith that was demonstrated on the cross. All right, if I can put my cards back together here in a little bit of an order. I'm going to tell you a story early in my practice. Early in my practice, before I came to the first amen meeting, I had a patient I'll call Tammy. Tammy was a lady in her late 30s. Um, she was a paramedic. Those of us with a little bit of healthcare knowledge, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a scary thing sometimes. Tammy had started off in Cincinnati being convinced that um, she had a cardiac illness. Tammy would pass out frequently, um, just come on her all of a sudden, she would just suddenly pass out. She had convinced somebody that she needed a pacemaker and the pacemaker was placed in Cincinnati and within just a few months of having the pacemaker placed, it became infected. Um, she had a long, prolonged course of antibiotics, ultimately had to have the pacemaker taken out. She had more halter monitors. She, got, she was such an annoying person that she had bounced from practice to practice to practice. She had been to three different practices in Cincinnati, and now before she came to see me, she had been in four different groups in Dayton. She had been in between everything between Cincinnati and Dayton. Um, Finally, again, somebody put a heart monitor on her, and she was passing out. And you can jiggle the monitor in such a way that it looks like you're having ventricular tachycardia. She had a normal ejection fraction. She'd had three heart casts that were all normal. She'd had multiple echocardiograms that were all normal. Um, but through whatever she did, she convinced somebody to put a defibrillator in her. Um, six months later, it became completely infected. It had to be taken out. While she had the defibrillator in, she never had an arrhythmia, um, never had a problem, but continued to pass out. Um, one of um, the internists in our town, who's an AMEN member, um, saw her. Um, he didn't think it was really a cardiac problem either, but he asked if I'd see her, and so she wound up coming to my practice. So this is like seven practices in the last four years. Um, she'd been kicked out one after another after another after they'd tried and did things, but because she was so annoying. Within the first day of visiting, I was a little bit skeptical of her story, um, but I wanted to get all the records and see what exactly had happened. And by the way, she now had a loop recorder that was implanted under the skin. The loop recorder can stay in for two to three years. That had been in for the last two years, and it had never, that had never recorded an arrhythmia. Um, but she still gave a history of, oh, yeah, she passes out almost every day never witnessed, um, and I was beginning to think that she probably had the psychogenic syncope. Um, she was a very troubled person. She looked like she was high stress. She started calling my nurse two to three times a day, every single day. Very annoying. <laughs> you know this kind of person, don't you? Every one of you that's in practice has encountered somebody like this. My nurse, within just a few couple of weeks, said, you've got to get rid of this lady. She is driving me crazy. It's all little annoying, nitpicky things. And so I got her records. I looked over everything. And um, I'm usually a fairly patient person, but my nurse was starting to drive me crazy. 
And finally, after the third visit back, and um, um, I sat down with her. I went through all the records. Uh, we had repeated some tests. They were all completely normal. And I finally sat down with her and said, Tammy, um, I think you have psychogenic syncope. It's not an underlying heart problem. Your arteries are normal. The monitor has never picked up any arrhythmia. Um, you have a lot of mental problems. This is not a heart problem. You need to see a psychiatrist. And I can't help you. I'm going to dismiss you from my practice. My nurse was so relieved. I told Tammy this. I was kind. Um, she came up to me, got right in my face. She reached over and straightened my tie and said, well, thank you, doctor, and turned around and walked away. Um, I have regretted this encounter for the last 10 years. Knowing what I know now, often people that have, whether it's psychological overlay or all this anxiety and they want to be sick to have something to explain what they're feeling, there's often a deep root cause. And later on, by talking to the, the physician that referred her to me, he told me, you know, she'd been sexually molested by her father-in-law when she was young. She'd bounced in and out of really bad relationships. She's experimented with other substances, and she's just had an extremely troubled life. Well, I'm a heart doctor. I don't treat those kind of problems. And I didn't know what else to give her, so I dismissed her from my practice. I had nothing more to offer her at that time. That's something I live with as an absolute failure because I believe that if this was before I knew how to pray with a patient, I was oblivious to the spiritual things behind it. And ultimately, she's going to continue to bounce and bounce and bounce and bounce until somebody addresses the underlying issues that are not addressed. And by the way, which most physicians don't want to address, because we're not comfortable with that. I don't know if she saw a psychiatrist. I don't know what happened to her. But it reminds me of a patient, a person, not really a patient, a person in the Bible. We don't consider this a healing act but a, a lady named Mary. Jesus came to Mary who had been abused in some way. We don't know the circumstances, but the spirit of prophecy says that Simon was involved, probably her uncle, somehow led her into sin. In that culture, you would be sent away from your family as an embarrassment if you somehow tripped up as a young person or got into some illicit relationship. And so she would have been ostracized, ostracized from her family, her community, probably sent away, probably going through some of the very same things that Tammy was going through. No self-worth whatsoever. Bouncing from relationship to relationship, just wanting to be loved. Wanting something to explain why I'm like this. And getting no help from the medical community. But Jesus is the master healer. Physically and spiritually. Mary wasn't an easy case for him. The Bible records that he cast out seven demons 
It doesn't say if this was all at once or over a period of time, but I imagine that it was over several times. This was a process. And yet, in the end, Christ knew just what to do, and Mary was restored. Mary was restored to her sense of value, her sense of relationship. She was restored to her family and restored to her community. And it was Mary. Mary was the only one who picked up on the fact that Jesus said that I'm going to die for the sins of the world. Before the crucifixion, the only one who saw that. And the Bible records the story about Mary, the only person in the New Testament before the cross of Christ who understood the value of what Jesus was going to do. And because her heart was broken and she was healed so completely, she responded completely. And so Mary, having experienced true repentance, having been completely restored by Jesus, bought this most precious ointment. You can pick up this story in Luke chapter 7, if you brought your Bibles. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet, and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee, we know this is Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who he is touching, for she is a sinner. Simon was the very one that had led Mary into sin. What is the greatest responsibility? Someone who gets tripped up unwittingly, taken advantage of, or the one that takes advantage? There's no gradations of sin, but Simon was absolutely as responsible as Mary. Simon, too, should have had a deep gratitude for Jesus because he had been healed from leprosy. That was even more of an outcast in society than what anything Mary had. His heart should have been burning with a love for Jesus, having been restored. And yet, he's kind of sitting back a little bit thinking, well... If he is a prophet, he had firsthand experience. He was healed of the most dreadful and curable disease of that day, leprosy. And he, too, was restored to his community. And so his heart was hard. Jesus ministered to both of them. Jesus stood up for Mary and accounted that what she had done was a great thing. In fact, Jesus said that wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman has done should be retold as a testimony to her. Jesus memorialized 
what Mary had done as the ultimate show of love that all who understand the sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf should have. The extravagance of giving a fine gift that costs a year's wages. When have any of us sacrificed that much for Jesus? And yet he also appealed to Simon's heart. He didn't embarrass him, but he asked him, Simon, who's going to love more? Those who were forgiven 300 pence or three, is it 3,000? It's 10 times more. Who's going to be forgiven more? Who's going to love more? He who was forgiven more, and uh, Simon's heart was convicted as well, and Simon ultimately became a follower of Jesus. Jesus knows how to heal. I have learned a few things since my first encounter with Tammy, largely because of studying Jesus' methods and coming to amen and being encouraged. And by studying the idea of the faith of Jesus. So in the last few minutes that we have together, I want to just look at a few examples of Jesus in in demonstrating faith. When we want to receive the faith of Jesus... How can we have that same faith? Jesus was able to look at someone and see not who they were, not what they did, but what they might become. There's the story of the pearl of great price. And I'm going to read a summary of this from the Spirit of Prophecy in Christ Object Lessons, page 118. The parable of the merchant man seeking goodly pearls has a double significance. It applies not only to men as seeking the kingdom of heaven, but to Christ as seeking his lost inheritance. Christ, the heavenly merchant man, seeking goodly pearls, saw in lost humanity the pearl of price. In man, defiled and ruined by sin, he saw the possibilities of redemption. That is seeing with the eye of faith. He saw the possibilities of redemption. Hearts that have been the battleground of the conflict with Satan and that have been rescued by the power of love are more precious to the Redeemer than are those who have never fallen. God looked at humanity not as vile and worthless. He looked upon it in Christ, saw it as it might become through Redeeming love. God has looked at the human race with eyes of love and compassion. Jesus did this with his disciples. Let's look back over at the story of Peter. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. Verse 31, just before Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, right after the Last Supper, Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Did Peter have faith? 
He's pretty confident. Peter had faith in himself. When we have faith in ourselves, we don't know our own hearts. The heart is deceitful. We delude ourselves so much. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say unto you, this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus saw the future. He knew what Peter was going to do. And Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. The disciples yet did not have the response that Mary had. Flip over to Luke chapter 22. Verse 31. All of us are sometimes like Peter. We don't know our own hearts. We want to work for God. We have a zeal to do it. But we look to our own strength. You know, as physicians and dentists especially, we are vulnerable to this. Because as a group, fairly intelligent, highly motivated, successful, usually have a lot of discipline that, like Neil talked about on Thursday night, we are a disciplined group, and if we set our minds to do something, we can usually accomplish it. And there's a danger being successful. Because we can get by teaching Sabbath school. We can get by doing health outreach. We can look like we're engaged and we're doing it. But if you're engaged with health outreach, you're engaged with service in your church, and yet you still have an empty feeling in your heart, maybe it's because you've been relying on your own strength and not on the source of real power. And so the Lord said to Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus knows the weakness of his disciples. He knows they're going to fail, but he still treats them kindly. He still instills a future in them. And he still says to Peter, when you've returned, strengthen your brethren and feed my sheep. All of us have the opportunity to plant faith into those around us. With your children... If you say to them, I'm so mad at you, this is, you did the stupidest thing, you're never going to amount to anything, that may become a self-fulfilling prophecy. But if you could take a young person who's not quite sure of themselves, doesn't really, haven't really applied themselves, but you can see a future for them, if you can pull them up to be all that they can be and encourage them to do that and say, you know what, I believe in you. You have, the, you have some tremendous people skills, and if, you, if you, you apply yourself and diligently work on this, I think you can do something really great. You could be a pastor. Or you're really good in math and science, and you could, be a, you could be a physician. You can be a teacher. You could change the future of a young person by speaking faith to them. 
And that's what Jesus is doing here with Peter. He is seeing not what is, but what can become. And that is the eye of faith that God looks at all of us on. With our spouses, with our patients. You know, when I come up to my patient and I say, uh, Dave, you know you really need to quit smoking. Have I done him any help? He already knows that. I've given him no strength. So I have been trying to learn to phrase this in a different way. Dave, you know the smoking is causing so much trouble for you. It's, it's, it's going to ultimately kill you. But God has a plan for you. In fact, God has already given you the victory. There are so many people that have struggled just like you have. But I have prayed with them. And they have, by, by God's grace, they have been able to give up smoking. And I believe that you can do the very same thing. If you can implant faith, if you can show them what they can be, that they can be successful even though they've failed over and over and over, you're going to be much more effective at, at motivating change. Why did Peter, after he had completely forsaken his Lord, cussed and sweared in denial of him, come back? Why didn't he do what Judas did? Because Peter's heart was broken by the compassion, the love that Jesus showed him. He went out and cried and wept bitterly and realized ever after in his life that that there's nothing good within him that he could rely on. And as a result of the cross experience, not only did they see the greatest demonstration of love that God could ever demonstrate, but they saw the poverty of their own hearts. And it transformed their lives ever after to live for him who died for them. They were transformed people. What about Judas? Did Christ treat Judas any differently than he treated Peter? Jesus washed Judas' feet. Jesus extended bread to Judas. Extending bread was a sign of acceptance, of we're, we're family, we're part of the, we're together in this. And Judas received the bread, knowing full well in his heart that he was going to go out and betray his Lord. Peter and Judas were different. Peter didn't understand his own heart, but he was nevertheless committed to Jesus. And when he was standing by the fire and he had just denied his Lord for the third time, Jesus looked at him with the eye of compassion. Jesus seemed to understand that, oh, these human beings are so frail, so weak. And he almost, he looked at him with compassion. And Peter's heart was broken. Judas knew full well that when he accepted the bread that he was still plotting to destroy Jesus because he was resentful. He was resentful of the accolations that Jesus received and he thought he should receive more of them. He was resentful for being rebuked by the experience with Mary at Simon's home. 
Because Judas is the one that started the rumors that why is such extravagance? Why is this money being wasted when it could be given to the poor and put into my pocketbook where he would have just cheated and took it? Even in the garden, when Judas came to betray his Lord, Jesus called him what? Friend. Everything that Jesus did treated Judas with compassion, the same as with Peter. But Judas's heart was hardened. It was full of unbelief and hardened to the message that Jesus was calling him. Peter's heart was weak, and he didn't understand his own heart but he was melted by the experience and he did indeed come back and strengthen his brethren. So turn with me to Hebrews. Actually, before I go there, let's look at Luke 18, verse 8. You know, all of Jesus' life, as he walked during his ministry for three and a half years, he looked over Israel, God's chosen, special people, looking for signs that they might respond, looking for signs of faith. And by and large, throughout the establishment, the only thing he found was unbelief to the point that they would reject the very Messiah that they had been looking for because he did not fit their mindset. Before we look at Luke 18 and just read a, a quote, when Jesus was coming down off of the Mount of Olives, the triumphal entry and the people were shouting, Hosanna, Jesus is coming, the king. They wanted to crown him king. As he comes down and he looks over the city, the Spirit of Prophecy and Desire of Ages, page 575, the last paragraph, Jesus gazes upon the scene and the vast multitude hush their shouts, spellbound by the sudden vision of beauty, of cresting the hill and seeing the beautiful sanctuary that was lightened up on the hill. All eyes turned upon the Savior, expecting to see in his countenance the admiration they themselves felt. But instead... Of this, they behold a cloud of sorrow. They are surprised and disappointed to see his eyes filled with tears, his body rocked to and fro like a tree before the tempest, while a wail of anguish bursts from his quivering lips, as if from the depths of a broken heart. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. 576, the tears of Jesus were are not in anticipation of his own suffering. He knew he was going to the cross, but that's not why he wept. Just before him was Gethsemane, where soon the horror of a great darkness would overshadow him. The sheep gate was in sight, through which for centuries the beasts for sacrificial offerings had been led. This gate was soon to open for him, the great antitype toward whose sacrifice for the sins of the world all these offerings had pointed. Nearby was Calvary, the scene of his approaching agony. Yet it was not because of these reminders of his cruel death that the Redeemer wept and groaned in anguish of spirit. 
His was no selfish sorrow. The thought of his own agony did not intimidate that noble, self-sacrificing soul. It was the sight of Jerusalem that pierced the heart of Jesus. Jerusalem that had rejected the Son of God and scorned his love. That had refused to be convinced by his mighty miracles and was about to take his life. He saw what she was in her guilt of rejecting her Redeemer. Jesus sees the reality. But, she also says, he saw what she might have been had she accepted him. Who alone could heal her wound? He had come to save her. How could he give her up? Jesus was looking with the eyes of faith. As we talked about on Friday, the faith of Jesus should be seen as a concentric expression that originates with the faith of Jesus Christ, but necessarily includes the answering faith of the believer. As a response to the gospel, the natural response should be a response of faith, unless it's quelched. Luke chapter 18, verse 8. The parable about the unrighteous judge, but Jesus tells you, I tell you that, he will avenge them speedingly. But nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really, really, will he really find faith on the earth? Jesus is looking forward to our day. Jesus is looking forward to our day, and he's asking the question, will there be faith on this world? You know what, whether we like, whether we're religious or not, we all, to some degree, live by faith. Any one of you would exchange this for me. <laughs> it's a $20 bill. Does this have any value? It's just a piece of paper. It has no value whatsoever. Now my wife is laughing at me. I don't have a $100 bill, sorry. This has no value whatsoever, but we put our what? Our faith and trust in the power behind it, the United States government. The Bible speaks of a time when people's hearts are going to fail them with fear. We are entering a time when people no longer trust what? The government. Government distrust is at an all-time high. And if the government can't protect me, who's going to do it? We are entering a time when faith is going to fail in every area. Governments are going to break down. Wars are going to be breaking out all over the place. Natural disasters are going to break, and people's hearts are going to be in absolute terror. And Jesus, looking forward to this time, says, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he? Will he really find faith? Will he find the faith of Jesus? And Revelation chapter 12 answers the question. The final showdown in this world is about those who, what? Those who have the mark of the beast and absolutely live in fear. And they 
kowtown to whatever power the U.S. starts using by force since faith has broken down to coerce the world into submission and to bring some sort of order and try to help people feel like there's some sense of security or this little group that follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. Really looking for Revelation 14. And in verse 12 it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. God is right now preparing a people that will stand as an ultimate demonstration, and it's going to be crystal clear that a group that lives by the faith of Jesus, perfect love casts out fear. They don't live in fear. They don't live in dread. They live by faith. And he's going to shepherd those people through the greatest calamity that as this world has ever seen. The time of trouble that has never been before. Well, let's close by turning to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. What does this faith look like? All down through the ages from the very beginning and just outside the Garden of Eden, we see by faith Abel. God has always had faithful people in every single generation. And the great hall of faith records just a few. I'm encouraged by several things. Whether you are murdered at a young age or whether you live to 969 years old, if you live by faith, it's recorded in the hall of faith. Some lived a short life, but they lived by faith. Some lived a long life, but they lived by faith. Some made a miserable failure of their whole life, but the Bible records in the case of Samson that he lived by faith. Imagine that. You could make a wreck of your whole life, failure after failure, as a doctor like I was with Tammy. But when it comes down to it and you finally figure it out, at some point in your life, you can still do that one righteous act that God calls you to do by faith, and you can be written in the hall of faith. Samson, David, Daniel. So, look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things, what? Not yet seen. That's what faith is. Noah had God's word, in nothing else. It had never rained. The scientists said this is impossible. And what did Noah do? He built an ark. He saw what God saw. Things not yet seen. He was looking with the eye of faith. Um, look over at verse um, 12. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, speaking of Abraham, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And verse 13 says, All these died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, 
were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They saw something that they didn't experience, but they believed because it was God's word. Verse 26, by faith Moses, in verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the riches, the treasures in Egypt, for he looked. What did he do? He looked somewhere else for his reward. That's living by faith. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. How do you see him who is invisible? With the eye of faith. God has promised in these last days that there will be a generation of people who have the faith of Jesus and keep his commandments. Seventh-day Adventists have been wrestling with this now for five generations. How will we be victorious? When we see what God sees. When we see that he is going to have a a group of physicians and dentists and healthcare workers that catch the vision to restore the right arm of the gospel and unite that with the power of the gospel of Christ and his righteousness. And they become distrustful of their own self-motivation, their own hearts of stone, and they begin to rely on the righteousness of Christ and the faith of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12. Well, actually, the last verse in Hebrews 11 as we move into there. Last two verses. Verse 39. All these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. There is going to be a group of people that God uses to put on the final greatest demonstration of what a group of faith-believing people can do. And we have the opportunity to be that final generation. Everything around us is screaming that this is the time. God is uniting, is raising up young people in GYC. He's reestablishing the health work by using Amen and other ministries like this. He is rolling out every resource in heaven to make this be the final generation in our very day. Do we believe it? Will we respond with a heart of faith? Will we begin to use all of our resources toward this goal, not worrying about our future? Because we know that we can be that final generation. The third angel's message is the proclamation of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. The commandments of God have been proclaimed, but the faith of Jesus has not been proclaimed by SDAs as of equal importance. The law and the gospel going hand in hand. Third selected messages, page 172. But get this, page 184. The faith of Jesus is not comprehended. We must talk it. We must live it. We must pray it and educate the people to bring this part of the message into their home lives. 
How do you bring this into your home life? By starting to see in each other what God sees. Not just to see a medical student, but to see a gospel evangelist and to help encourage them to be that. Not to just see someone who's wronged me in the past and think that they can never change, but to see how Jesus sees them. When we start treating each other this way, when I start looking at myself this way, not the miserable doctor who failed to provide what my patients truly needed, but to realize that God has a calling on my heart that is far greater than what I see for myself. I was struck with one thing Thursday night in Dr. Nedley's presentation that, you know what, might be going along okay, but if I had comprehensive self-control, now my wife's really laughing, some of us could be Paul's and Peter's and could rise to things far greater than what we've held out as even possible. That convicted me that I've done some things, but I could do far more. Jesus is producing a people who have the faith of Jesus. God is going to put on the greatest demonstration of what his faith and power can do when the human race is at its weakest point, genetically, morally, when we have no strength whatsoever and it looks absolutely impossible, that's when he pours out a message of the righteousness of Christ that produces within us a response of faith that will produce a people who reflect his character. Listen to this. By his life, and this is Desire of Ages, page 25, by his life in death, Christ has achieved even more than recovery from the ruin wrought through sin. It was Satan's purpose to bring about an eternal separation between God and man. But in Christ, we become more closely united to God than if we had never fallen. Imagine that. We are going to be elevated closer to God than if we had never fallen. I have been struck in, with my studies recently that it's an incredible thing. Which created being was the very closest to the throne of God and was the representative of God to the rest of the universe? Who was that? Lucifer, the very agent that tries to pull us down and destroy us as a race. Which group of people is ultimately going to take that position in the universe? the very group of people that Satan tried to destroy will ultimately take his position that he vacated because of unbelief, because of the pride that he had in his heart. God is going to have a people who will become a kingdom of priests. Satan, uh, Lucifer's job was to go out throughout the whole universe and to explain what the character of God was truly like the people that have lived through the demonstration of God's greatest act of faith demonstrated in this world will be that group of people. His last generation, the 144,000 of all the 12 tribes, are going to go throughout the universe being the ones that explain God's love to those, to those unfallen worlds. What he gave up, God elevates the human race to receive. 
We have a very high calling. We are that final generation. It can't get much worse. Now is the time for our hearts to respond. And so it says here, in taking our nature, the Savior has bound himself to humanity by a tie that is never to be broken. Through the eternal ages, he is linked with us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave him not to bear our sins and die as our sacrifice. He gave him not only to bear our sins and die as our sacrifice. He gave him to the fallen race to assure us of his immutable counsel of peace. God gave his only begotten son to become one of the human race forever to retain his human nature This is the pledge that God will fulfill his word. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. God's word is faithful. God is faithful. He will produce what he says he will produce if we can just get ourselves out of the way and begin to believe with the eye of faith. Well, let me close with another story. I have a patient named Stephen. Unfortunately, he came after I'd been coming to, amen. Stephen is not the kind of guy that I would normally have picked out to pray with. He had a leather jacket, a a shirt that had the sleeves cut off, a bandana. He looked pretty rough. He weighed about 350 or 60 pounds. uh, He was in his early 40s. And uh, he just looked stressed out. Stephen had been to the emergency room with chest pain. It was sharp. It didn't sound like it was his heart. Um, we, had, we, had, we did a stress test, and um, that was fine. This was not cardiac pain. Um, but Stephen was living a hard life. We did get some labs on him. His LDL cholesterol was like 180. It was really, really pretty high. Um, his triglycerides were high. Um, he was very heavy. He already had type 2 diabetes. Um, He had high blood pressure. He um, rode a motorcycle. He worked down in Cincinnati, and he just spent so much time commuting back and forth at this job that was taking all of his time that he said, I'm just so stressed out. My marriage is falling apart. He admitted that he just parties hard on the weekends using um, lots of alcohol, and he smoked continually three packs per day. Stephen looked like a pretty rough guy. He had every single risk factor for heart disease going with for, against him. And yet, this wasn't his heart. Not yet. So I met with Stephen uh, to review the labs, to review the stress tests, and to review that. And I said, Stephen, this, this pain isn't your heart. I think you're under a tremendous amount of stress. You are burning the candle at both ends. You are literally destroying yourself through your lifestyle choices. And if this continues much longer, you really will have a heart attack. And you will die at age 50 like your father did. And, um, but I said, Stephen, this isn't God's plan for you. God can give you the strength to change these habits. And I said, and one of the things I I often do, I tell him, I won't ask you to do anything I won't do myself. And they usually breathe a big sigh of relief. But then I told him, I said, Stephen... God has a plan, and God, in the Bible, God talks about his diet. It's a plant-based diet. It can reverse heart disease. And I said, Stephen, he can give you the victory over smoking. He can turn your life around. He can, um, if, if we ask him, he can, 
help you deal with the stress and help you get your life under control. And so, as I always do with all my patients since the first time I came to ABEN, I said, and by the way, one of the things I offer to do with all my patients is to have a prayer with them. Is that something you'd appreciate? Often my patients get tears in their eyes. Stephen started sobbing. He's in my office. He says, oh, absolutely, that, that would be great. I, I, I did go to church as a kid, and, um, but I haven't been back, and my life's falling apart, and this is when he told me his marriage is falling apart, and his life's just out of control. And so um, I prayed with him, and I prayed that the Lord would give him victory. Um, and I did something at the end of the prayer that I don't normally do. I said, Stephen, all these things are, are, are going against you. If you could change your diet, um, the Lord will, will bless you. He'll give you the strength to do that. The Lord will give you the strength to overcome smoking. I have seen people be able to turn their lives around, and you can do it too. And I went through each and every one of his risk factors, the high blood pressure, the high cholesterol, um, the diabetes, the fact that he was overweight and that all this was related to his stressful life and the way that he was abusing himself. And so after we prayed and I did that, I said, well, your heart's fine. Well, let's see you back in a year. My nurse, who likes to jump to conclusions, had put Stephen into the room a year later. He had lost over 120 pounds. He was wearing a shirt and was dressed up. He was clean cut, no bandana. And so she came out to me and says, oh, Stephen's here. Um, and uh, he had his bariatric surgery and it's looking great. <laughs> that's, that's one of the few ways we see people lose that kind of weight. Um, it might have been about a year and a half, but over a certain period of time, he'd lost over 100 pounds. So I walked in and I said, I don't remember working him up for that. But I walked in and said, Stephen, did you have surgery? He said, no, I didn't have surgery. What are you talking about? I said, oh, well, my nurse just mentioned that you've lost a lot of weight, and so she thought you might have had bariatric surgery. And he goes, no, I just went on that diet you told me about. <laughs> now, I did not plug him in to dinner with a doctor. I didn't plug him in to our CHIP program. I didn't plug him into anything. I gave him zero resources which I repent of. <laughs> but I painted a picture for what he could be. And Stephen said, no, I stopped smoking. I started exercising. I joined a gym, and I am a vegan vegetarian. <laughs> he had his blood work there. He was no longer diabetic. His lipids were not quite normal, but substantially down to near normal. Um, he had lost over 100 pounds. He looked like a totally new, happy guy. He joined a church. His marriage was doing better, and he had stopped smoking. I said, well, how did you stop smoking? He said, I never picked up another cigarette from the moment you I walked out of my office. I said, well, how did you make these changes? He said, because you prayed with me. <laughs> yeah, praise the Lord. And Stephen is his real name, and he's given me permission to share the story. When you make an impact in somebody's life and you teach them how they can live differently, when you see a picture for them that they don't see for themselves, and when they catch that picture and they see how it transforms them, they become disciples. They become 
the people that go out and testify for what you've done. They become the Marys who would do anything. They would wash your feet with their hair. They would give you anything. Um, Stephen was so grateful. His life was transformed. He didn't have diabetes. He didn't have high blood pressure. His weight was almost down to normal. Um, He'd stopped smoking. The only risk factor that he had left was his family history, which was probably largely related to his father living the same lifestyle that he lived. He had not used any drugs. He'd given up alcohol. He had completely, radically transformed his life because of one encounter. That's an amazing story, but it's even more amazing. Four years later, my wife and I, who at that time were decided to go to what's, what in our area is called a homorama. A homorama is where the luxury builders in the neighborhood will get together and they'll build four or five or six houses just around a circle, put in the finest features and all the luxury things. These places have granite everywhere. <clears throat> Home theaters, every new feature imaginable, these houses have it. They're showing off their best houses. And you pay like $12 or $14 for a ticket, and you get to go tour these houses. And there's lots of people there. They'll, so you'll wait outside the door. There'll be about 20 people outside. And then when the group gets through the house, they'll open the door, invite you in. And there's somebody there that welcomes you and says, this is the home that's built by Dan Jones. He's a luxury builder in the area, and this house is 7,500 square feet. It's got a home theater, seven bathrooms, and six bedrooms, and a gym, and it's got everything. That's what they're supposed to tell you. This guy wearing a suit coat and a jacket and a tie opens the door. He invites us in. There's about 25 people in the room. We're all here to see this house. I glance at him, and he glances at me. He looks at me and he says, I know you. He's thin. He's clean cut. My wife's heard me talk about him, but she's never met him. And he says, no, I know you. You're my doctor. (laughs) And he begins to proceed to tell everybody in the group, this is the doctor that saved my life. I used to be 360 pounds. I used to smoke. And he prayed with me. And because of that, it changed my life. He rattles off all the things that happened, and we're just standing there. This, so much for the house. Um, This is the response that people's hearts will have when they are melted by our sacrificial work of ministry in our offices. To see what Jesus sees in every person that comes into our office, that is the faith of Jesus. To be able to look at the most downcast patient and not see what they come in complaining about, but to see what's beneath it. And to help them see what they can be, that is the faith of Jesus. One last text. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of, my Bible has the supplied in italics, our faith. But the original said, he is the author and the finisher of faith. The Alpha and the Omega of faith, Jesus Christ, looking on to the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If Jesus came to secure this 
lonely planet, the pearl of great price, we can have the assurance that he's going to see it through to the end. And faith will truly be the victory. Let's bow our heads. Well, our Father in heaven, it's indeed been a blessing to be here and fellowship together these past three days. And I just pray that you would be with each and every one here in this room. That you'd be with our families. That you would be with our home churches. That you would bless each one as they travel. But more importantly, Father, whether we live long life or whether we, our life comes abruptly to a close, whether you bless us with fabulous wealth or we live destitute, whatever you call us to do, I pray that we will see your will for our lives, that we will submit our lives to your plan, that your word will be sufficient, and that we will cling to the faith of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus made in coming to this little world to be joined to the human race forever, to share the role of representing you throughout the universe, throughout all time. We thank you that you've given us, this last generation, that privilege. Father, we want to believe, but our hearts are slow to believe. And so help our unbelief. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.